Tony Gargan, welcome to Inspired By. Going on a training course to learn about public speaking helped me deal with losing my mum, which had happened so many years before. I think so many people don't realise that storytelling is therapy. Because we're having an impact on people's lives, one way or another, sometimes we just don't realise it. Retail is a predominantly male environment, but HR is a predominantly female environment. Yep. So in a senior team, nine times out of 10, I was the only woman. Can I speak to the manager? And I'm like, it's me. And they look you up and down. Can yeah. I speak to the real manager? You know, the, the, the one with penis. <laughs> no. Welcome to Inspire By, the show that brings you inspiring stories from inspiring entrepreneurs with a twist. Now, I believe that every successful entrepreneur and celebrity on this planet has an inspiring story. And they have stories that they haven't yet told. Not because they don't want to tell the story, but because they haven't been asked the right questions. So my job on the show is to ask the real questions so that you get the real answers. Now, with that in mind, let's get started. Tony Gargan, welcome to Inspired By. Thank you for having me. How are you doing, lovely? I am absolutely amazing. How are you? I'm doing good. I feel back at home being in the studio. <laughs> and thank you so much for traveling all the way down to, for those of you guys that are watching or listening, we're currently in our studio in London and Tony's traveled all the way from up north to be here. So thank you so much. Via Peterborough. So I'd, I'd have traveled anywhere for you. I love it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for having me. No problem. So as you know, you've obviously listened to a couple of the Inspired By shows. The Inspired By show concept is all about inspiring others through our story. Now, people may know you with many different hats. You're known <laughs> as a property investor, also double world record holder in public speaking. So who is Tony Gargan? Good question. Well, kind of first and foremost, I'm wife and mum. That's me in my natural element, all of the other stuff came later in so much as I am a mum, I am a wife, I am a sister, I am a daughter, and then all of the other stuff comes mm. next. So kind of top of the pecking order thereafter is public speaker because it's genuinely my passion. Love helping and supporting people. In the background, I'm also, I run multiple different businesses, but predominantly in the property sector. Wow. And what attracted you to the, the public speaking world? Because you just said that's where your passion really lies. I totally fell into it. I was dragged along, literally dragged along <laughs> to a property event. I had zero desire to invest in property and I was dragged along to a property event and it was a really small room. So it was quite intimate. There was only, I can't remember how many people, but I remember it must have been, it was really small. Look, knock the already. <laughs> really small horseshoe shape. There was about kind of five, eight people. It was really small. And I was not, I was listening to the property content, but I was so inspired by the speaker mm. that at the end of the day, going around the room, because it was such a small room, what do you want to achieve? You know, I want to buy a million houses. I want to own the whole of Colchester, whatever. And when he asked me, I said, I want your job. I want to be a speaker. And it was something that I'd never known I wanted to do until I seen someone doing it in a way that really resonated with me. Wow. And it's funny because you ended up doing both of those things. You ended up getting <laughs> to property and then speaking. Did property come first? Yeah. Yeah. And then that opened the doors for speaking for you. Yeah. I think initially, as I say, I had zero desire to invest in property. That was my husband's vision. But given the fact that, you know, he plays by the rule of why have a dog and bark yourself. I'm the more outspoken. I'm the more, you know, go out there and network. So he was leveraging me without me actually realizing. Um, but for me, I knew they both had to fuel one another because I'm always asked kind of which came first or do you wish it had been done differently? The Public speaking came as a byproduct because I didn't actually attend the event with that intention. But the property, building up the property portfolio, 
was a kind of at the forefront because I thought, well, I need something to speak about. Mm -hmm. Hindsight's amazing. I realise now you don't actually need a strategy or a niche to speak about. But back then I thought I need to build a property portfolio. So I've got an authority in some area to speak about that, which will then fuel the public speaking, but actually one fed the other because the public speaking and the ability to speak. So although property came first, I actually trained in both alongside one another. So the public speaking skill set is what raised the finance to build the property business and the property business being something that I could teach other people fueled the public speaking. So yeah, they went hand in hand. Wow, I love that. Because a lot of people I think in property, they're like, they need to learn the strategies, they need to learn the analysis, they need to have the contacts. But I think a lot of people underestimate the value of communication and how to actually have a conversation. Well, this is something that you and I, this is one of the reasons that I'm drawn to you as a person <laughs> is I love the communication, the storytelling. Mm. And it's a skill set that everyone's got, but not everyone owns. And mm. when you realize the power it has in, not just in business, but in your job, you know, I used the skill set of public speaking to get two pay rises in one year in a job that that was unheard of. I, I've always been a public speaker without realizing. So I used to have to train people. So, I'd do, but it was boring as hell. Mm. Like I was a HR manager in a retail environment. So I'd do inductions that nobody wanted to attend. I didn't want to deliver them. It was, <laughs> you know, requirement of the job and trying to make health and safety of food training and, you know, control of substances, hazardous to health, exciting was really difficult. Mm. And I think, as you and I both know in public speaking, people feed off your energy. So it was a bit of a cycle of, of I didn't really enjoy it. And then once I'd learned the skill set, I was still in a full-time job. It was where can I apply that in all areas of my life? And when I applied it in the job, the biggest shock to me was people saying, oh, I really enjoyed that training. And you know, you're kind of looking behind you going, are they, are they talking to me? <laughs> are we going to do any more? And that's kind of the massive light bulb for me of this works everywhere. And we've all got a skill set in public speaking, but when it's polished or when it's honed, it just, it, it improves everything. Wow. Were you natural at speaking? Like, to be honest, Tony, it comes across like you've got the gift of the gab. Like, that's why I feel like us could just chat for ages, <laughs> like whether there's cameras there or not. Have you always had that? Or is that something that came with this practice? I think I've always, I, well, you and I pre-recording, we were talking about the fact that, you know, you've got family from Liverpool. I think it's a Scouse trait. I was going to say, I was like, you say that, not me. You're allowed to say that. <laughs> yeah, I'm allowed to say that. And true Scousers are never offended when you call them a Scouser. Mm. I'm, I'm really proud of where I'm from, you know, and I, I do think most Scousers have the gift of the gab, but I'm also the youngest of six kids. I was the ultimate entertainer in the family because I had a pre-made audience. So I think I've mm. always liked a bit of a spotlight and attention because it was given to me from such a young age. Mm. My older brothers and sisters are significantly older. So my next sister to me is only two years older, but then there's a 10 year gap and then four older siblings plus parents, mm. massive family, which is normal for a, you know, a, an, an English Irish Catholic family. And so I always had an audience and I think I've always mm. enjoyed talking. And also it was a deflection for me when I was younger. So I, I could talk my way out of things if I got into a bit of trouble, which was sometimes the case. Yeah. Or if I didn't know, I, I liked being, I've always been a bit of a people pleaser. And I think mm. speaking has been the skill set that I've always had, but didn't know. Yeah, I love that. I love how most of us go through things in our childhood that create a skill or piece of knowledge that we didn't expect. And it's most of it's through just coping and getting through it. I'm an only child, by the way, so a bit of context, but my mum is one of eight. And when I talk to my mum and my family, they've always said it's been quite challenging being like one of quite a big family. Whereas I've obviously not got yeah. the thing to connect with that. How did you find it being one of six? Oh, I love being from a big family. So 
obviously everything has its blessings and its curses. The blessing being you were never lonely. I was never bored as a child. I was never lonely. Mm. Irrespective of how things were financially in the family, we always had love and, you know, it sounds really cheesy, but it's only when you look back that you realise I've always loved being from a, a big family. I love being around people, which is probably the reason I do what I do as much mm. as I love my own company. And I think I got the best of both worlds because there was a big gap between us. So there was only two of us at a younger age and being the youngest, I did get all of the attention, but I could be quite solitary. So I love being from a big family. I love spending time with people in in small doses, in the right doses, in the right areas. So it's it's definitely something I've always enjoyed. And it's bizarre that, you know, talking to someone who is an only child, I can't imagine that concept. Yeah. And I think you adapt to your circumstances. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it would have been absolutely fine and vice versa. You would have been absolutely fine as one of a big family. Yeah. But personally... I love it. And we still spend a huge amount of time together as a family as well. I know why. That's amazing. Because a lot of big families, it's like, can cause conflict or like, you know, it can, people can get to get on, but then there's always like, you know, a bit more drama, a bit more gossip. Like for oh, me, there's still that. I was like, <laughs> <She's> <laughs> like we just love it. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, it's good and bad in everything, but mm. we still go away for Christmas every year as a family. So we go to the Lake District because, you know, hindsight, you realize time's really precious we lost my mum when I was 21. So it was a really young age to lose mum and it kind of can set me on the, the path that I'm on now. Mm. Um, and my dad is still around and he's 87 and he is the coolest 87 year old you've ever met in your life. Wow. And we don't know how many Christmases we've got left with anyone in our lives. So for mm. me, him seeing his grandchildren and his children and all their partners and stuff, open their presents and memories of the thing that we've always got left when everything else has gone. So I'm all about making memories. And so Christmas, we spend a lot of time to get my two little boys to do Taekwondo and we travel, you know, the length and breadth of the country with them. And so they, the boys have just recently competed in the European Championships. Wow. So they got to go to Northern Ireland and my dad can't fly because he's got a lot of health problems, um, but got on a ferry to go to Northern Ireland and to have him there witnessing them, you know, achieving what they've achieved, as well as the rest of the family. Like, we're loud. And that's great because the boys know they're always supported. Yeah. Win, lose, or draw. Oh, that's so amazing. I, I think that's so important because like you say, families, we don't know when people are going to be with us. And you mentioned there your mum, like losing her was a huge part of the start of your journey. Tell me more about that. What, how did that sort of paint the path you're on now? I don't think it did until I realised, and this is why I'm so passionate about public speaking and storytelling, because learning, it sounds like ridiculous that, you know, going on a training course to learn about public speaking helped me deal with losing my mum, which had happened so many years before. Mm. So it was... It was hindsight that made me understand that actually I've always been the supporter. I always put other people first, which again, blessing and a curse. But I think I was trying to fill the shoes of mum. So I was, mm. although I was the youngest, I kind of, it was me who was like, we need to organise a funeral in such a way. And, you know, I kind of dealt with it or thought I dealt with it when realised afterwards I hadn't. I just got on with it and never really dealt with the grief and the loss and the unfairness that I felt. Yeah. I just kind of skated over it. And I think that's what a lot of people do, don't they? You know, mm. I'm all right. And, you know, it was it was deep diving on that that made me realise actually it wasn't all right and it's okay to be upset and mm. it's all right to be angry. And it made me realise now that the support of the role that I always have, because I support people in public speaking, I support people, I'm a mentor, I'm a coach, I'm a trainer. That's me kind of kind of trying to replicate what I believe were my mum's best traits because she looked after everyone else first. Wow. 
That's amazing. I, I think that's really good, Tony, because you're right. We all go through things that are challenging. And like you say, most of us don't actually realize the impact. Like I, I haven't lost either my parents, but I've gone through a lot of wobbles in my life, which has caused a lot of grief, yeah. exes, relationships, ev everything you can name. And I find that I still go through the stages of grief. And for me, when I had my depression the first time, I was in denial for years. And I mean, like the first stage of grief is denial. And I was oblivious and I told everyone I was okay until for one second I wasn't. And it was like, I just popped. Now that for me was like the equivalent of going on that journey. Are you glad or grateful though, that it didn't like pop for you until you were in that setting where you were learning the speaking school, the speaking skills? Now, I just want to interrupt this episode with something really exciting I want to share with you. Maybe you've been listening to this episode or watching it thinking, Chloe, I've got an inspiring story. I would love to tell my story. Maybe you're sat there like many of our guests who have an inspiring story and know you have knowledge and experience you want to share with the world, but you don't quite know how to use it to help others. Well, I've worked with over 100 authors and co-authors to share their story in books and ultimately use their knowledge and experience that they've picked up on their way to help other people all over the world. And not only have they helped other people, they've gone on to be number one best-selling authors, speak on stages with well-known celebrities and feature on podcasts just like this. And maybe there's a part of you that thinks, you know what, Chloe, I would love to be doing that too. Well, let me tell you a secret. It all starts with planning exactly what you want to write or share in your own book. And one of the things that I've learned from working with so many different authors is that planning is the key to success. And so if there's a part of you that would like to be able to write and publish your own book or start sharing your story, sharing your message with people that you know that could really benefit from it, then I've got something special for you. I've come up with a planner that I've used to work with all of my authors so far that helps you to get your stories out of your head and onto paper and ultimately into a published book. Now, normally that's only for our paying clients, but I'm going to be making it available as a gift to you as a loyal listener and follower of the Inspired by Show. So if you want to learn how to write your story, learn how to get your book out of your head onto paper and plan your best-selling book, then you can get access to this planner for free. All you've got to do, go to www.inspiredbybooks.co uk slash planner or to make it easier i've popped the link in the description for you today so click the link enter your details and get access to this writing planner now i cannot wait to hear what book idea you've come up with now back to the episode that's a very good question i'm a firm believer that like you can't change the past you can only change what's going mm. forward so i'd never say i'd wish this or shoulda woulda coulda i just think you know geez what's the what's the song should beverly knight i'm a big beverly knight fan <laughs> shoulda woulda coulda are the last words of a fool i just think can't change that mm. i'm really grateful that it happened when it did i was probably in the right setting for it i was definitely in the right place in life for it to change the trajectory and yeah i think i had like a, a little kind of mini pop of that in it was just as you say, and kind of you didn't realize you were in denial until you realized you're in denial. And it was that one kind of pivotal moment. Mm. And it was about two weeks after my mum had passed away and I'd gone back to work because I thought I need normality. I was still studying. I was in university. I'd lost my way a little bit, kind of didn't really want to go to university. There was very much now with hindsight, uh, what's the point kind of mm. thing. Um, and I used to have two jobs because we've oh, it's always been instilled in us. If you want some, you want something, girl, you work hard for it. And so that's what I was doing. I had two jobs. I used to work for DHL and I had multiple faceted roles in there. I was a data entry clerk and I worked in the warehouse and I worked on reception, which was great because I was really nosy and used to get to look inside people's parcels. But the other part of it was that I worked for a supermarket 
and I worked on checkouts. So I, I used to take on lots of different roles and it was about two weeks after I was like, I need some normality. So I went back to work. Definitely too early, but you know, you just do what you do. Mm. And it's so ridiculous when I look back now. I was serving someone on the checkout and someone handed me money. And as I looked up, I saw her hand. And for a split second, I thought it was my mum's hands. And that was the way you say that. I just started crying. I was hysterical. This poor woman is oblivious. And she's like, what have I done? I'm just trying to pay for my shopping. And her hand looked like my mum's hand and I lost it. Needed to be like escorted from the till. I must have looked like a raven lunatic. But I think that was, I'd not really dealt with it. And that was when I really brushed it under the carpet. It was like, get a grip of yourself, crack on, you know. This is ridiculous. So I just carried on doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so I think when it happened many years later, so that was 2004, and this course that I attended was 2015. So it was 11 years later, by which time I'd met my husband, had my two little boys. And so, uh, and we were at a kind of a crossroads where I wasn't really enjoying my job, but didn't realize I wasn't really enjoying my job because kind of relative to my husband hating his job, I thought my job was good mm. when I realized, I, you know, hindsight again, I realized afterwards it was just slightly less depressing than his. Yeah. So there were many parts of it that I enjoyed, but because I'm the, I'm my mum's daughter, you know, you just crack on, you get on with it. I realized afterwards, wasn't really enjoying my job, didn't feel fulfilled, loved being a mum, but didn't feel like I was a very good mum because I was spending so much time away from the kids, didn't feel mm. like a good wife because, you know, I'd bring the stresses of the job home. And so I think it happened at the right time to change the the direction for us as a family because mm. it wasn't just the impact it had on me it was the kind of ripple effect wow so 2004 this is when that you know the what I call I use the word wobble that's my nice way of saying a breakdown for me <laughs> right so your wobble happened around 2004 and then 11 years later training in property and speaking what happened on that journey for then I assume it was your husband to say let's go to this property course because it sounds like it was, was or was it is that a correct assumption well prior to all of that actually 2004 so long story short I then got into a relationship we were together for years we bought a house we then broke up I realized actually I wasn't really happy neither was he we broke up and we were stuck with this house because it was then 2007. Not a good time for us to be buying a house on a 100% mortgage away from Liverpool. You know, it was, I think I was probably trying to run away from stuff. Um, so I was stuck with this house in negative equity. I became an accidental landlord, hated every second of it. Still had the house in 2015 when we went to, to do the training and it was like a millstone around my neck, but the property prices hadn't moved up. So I don't know if you can imagine being there when, you know, your my then husband by this point says, we should invest in property. And I was a bit like, what? <laughs> did you see what we did? It kind of came about because we lived in this beautiful house. It was a rented property. So by this point, we had one of our children. So we had Owen, our eldest, living in this gorgeous house, which was an old converted building. So it was next to the church. We had no garden, but we lived opposite a massive, well, we had a little yard, but it kind of the lookout of our top windows was into the churchyard and the graveyard. So I always make a joke about the fact that we did have very quiet neighbours, but I loved it. Some people were scared by it. I loved it. Mm -hmm. It's in a little courtyard. We had a huge field opposite with a big play area for Owen. So I loved this house and we were renting it. And always wanted to buy it. Landlord wasn't willing to sell. So we stayed there for a 
can't even remember how long, but the landlord used to collect the rent. You know, I am a scouser. He used to collect the rent in cash, <laughs> knocking on the door. Um, and he did this for so long. And Chris was has always had an interest in property, always had an interest in architecture predominantly. And so he'd ask our landlord questions and James would come and he'd, you know, throw the money into his little duffel bag. And he owned all of the six houses in this little courtyard. So Chris then asked him, how many houses do you have? And he told him how many it was. And it was 30 something. Chris, yeah, Chris's face was a bit like that. Do the quick maths. That's a lot of money. Wow. So he said, we've got two options. You know, we'd be true scousers and we mug him, but that's not our style. <laughs> or we do what he does. And so I was dead against it because I was like, I've tried this once, accidental landlord. Granted, it was, you know, the caveat being I didn't really train to do it, but I hated it. So I genuinely thought after much nagging, like we'd been to a different training company first. I didn't like the style. I didn't like the sales. I was very anti-training companies. The irony now being I obviously train for training companies. Um, so it took him a good year to convince me. He'd done a load of research, which is something that he's very good at. He's very diligent. Done a load of research, found the company that we trained with. And it was actually Rob Moore. He was listening to a webinar with him. was like, you should listen to this. And I listened and was a bit like, mm, he's not for me. <laughs> He's very loud and he's probably saw the traits in him that I have myself. Um, And I was like, fine, okay. So genuinely thought we would go along to this training company, the one day day event we went along to, and that Chris would realise it's not for us and, you know, we can't do it and that'd be it. We'd go back to our normal life, but that wasn't the case. (laughs) And so that's what made us go along. It was, you know, I I was reluctantly doing it. Mm -hmm. And now... I'm the one who's kind of the driving force behind it. I guess things happen for us, but we don't know the reasons why. And so was was there any a part of you where, when Chris obviously continued this idea, where you were still not on board? Oh God, yeah, the whole time. So initially I was like genuinely not on board. I'm not interested. Look, look up the mistakes I've made. I still owned this house that was still in negative equity by that point. And was like, property was so good. I reckon between 2007 and 2015, something would have changed. Um, so I was quite reluctant, but I trust him implicitly and he's going to listen to this, isn't he? So he has a very good intuition and a very good gut. He's a real good judge of character, which I absolutely hate and love about him because some I'm very much a, I'll believe that you're a good person until you prove me wrong. Whereas he has an instinct and a gut and he's like, there's something about that person that I just don't trust and I don't know why. And I've always kind of poo-pooed the idea and gone, oh, you need to stop being so miserable and, you know, trust people. And every time he has been, he's proven right. Mm. And so I've always kind of, I believe in him implicitly and he's not the type of person to go out and just start things. You know, he's not, he's not, he doesn't move from thing to thing. I've always been a bit of a shiny penny chaser and he's not like that. He's very diligent. He's very thorough. So I thought, well, there must be something in it. So I think kind of behind the scenes, I must have known deep down that he wouldn't have just Mm. done all of this research for no reason. So I suppose I kind of wanted him to prove me wrong. And he... Proving me wrong. (laughs) Yeah, proving me wrong. Oh, roles reverse though. So he took me along to this one day event. But bearing in mind, we've been to a different training company beforehand. We knew that there would be a sale of some sort. And it was like, whatever they're selling, we're not buying. Not doing it. Just going to go along and get the free information. I was quite happy with that because I thought we're just going along so that you can realize it's still the same stuff. It's not for us. Um, And then the offer was made and I was like, me, me, I want to do it. And Chris then went, oh, hang on a minute. Because he's very, you know, he's not a procrastinator, but he's very diligent and he's very thorough. So it was like... 
let's just go away and think about it. And I was, I'm very gung-ho. So I was like, no, I'm doing the training. I'm going to go and do it. So from it being him dragging me along and me reluctantly going, it then turned to me dragging him along. So I did the trainings on my own. Chris didn't even come to the advanced trainings. No way. Yeah, I did it all on my own. That is amazing. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know what? I was giggling or trying not to giggle during that story, not because of the story, but because I'm exactly the same as you. And Cedric, my <laughs> boyfriend, is exactly the same as Chris. Isn't that why we work well together? It is, though? isn't it, Tony? I yeah. drag him along. He reins me in when I think I can do things that are literally impossible. He'll give me the support, but he's like, well, uh, let's just <laughs> let's just hold you back a little bit. So we work really well because we are both mm. life partners and business partners. So we are business partners mm. in all of the property stuff as well. And I think I can, you know, build casinos on the moon and buy the whole of Liverpool and beyond. And he's like, one at a time, two <laughs> at a time. Let's gradually move forward. But it's what makes us work really well yeah, together. Yeah, of course. So how has it been being life partners and business partners? Oh, it's had its challenges <laughs> along the way. We've had many an argument. I think the realization for us was that because we are very different people, our strengths lie in different areas. So we've been really fortunate that quite early on mm. we were, you know, it was recommended to us to sit down and divvy up the tasks that we do. And that works really well because we're so different. So Chris's idea of hell is standing on a stage and delivering trainings, you know, negotiating, working with finance and, and dealing with the finance raising, whereas I'm not the most detailed of people. So he works great in the background. He works really well with all of our contractors. You know, he's got a spreadsheet to tell them whether the last spreadsheet worked and all of that. So because our roles are very different, mm. it works really well. We still do butt heads every now and again, but we've been, you know, we've been together for so long now. We've been together for yeah. 15 years almost. We've realized I know when he needs leaving alone and he knows when I need leaving wow. alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing that we know though, right? You get to that point where you're like, okay, here, here's the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I'm lighting the touch paper here. It's going to go one way or another. <laughs> and I'm sure he knows the same for you though, oh, right? God, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's more him with me. <laughs> I was just about to say the exact same thing. Exactly. So you're then on the public, you're on the property journey first. At what point did the public speaking take over for you? Whether that was the passion or... The, the passion was immediately. Okay. The roles was, I actually done both simultaneously, which did cause strain because Chris and I have had many an argument because I am a visionary and a big thinker. And also he wasn't there. So you know yourself because you run trainings and mentorships mm. that the person experience and it has this experience. The person who sat at home doesn't get to experience it and you can't explain it. And so me coming home and going, I'm going to go and do this training and I'm going to do this mentorship. And he's like, hang on, let's get the results from this. So we done the property training first. We, I done the property training. So this was in the March. Then joined a mentorship program for the kind of support and accountability thereafter in the April. So that was quite suddenly afterwards. And then I did prop uh, the public speaking training in May and joined the public speaking mentorship path in June so it was very much all together and Chris was like you know we, we were both in you know relatively well-paid jobs but we live into our means and it was like hang on a minute and because he's such a diligent person and he's mm -hmm. like I need to see the results of this before I'm willing to do that whereas I'm like no it's amazing we should do everything bearing in mind I wasn't really time rich at that mm -hmm. point because I had a full-time job he had a full-time job and at that point our eldest was not yet four and our youngest was one so we were busy and finances were tight because we've moved into a new house etc you know moving from a one-car family to a two-car family and all of these things so we were not really in the position but I suppose that made me now believe that there's never really a right time is there because I saw the vision and one thing that I you know 
I have to give massive credit to him for is that even though he didn't always see the vision or wasn't experienced and what I was, you know, the fix of positivity and the, the belief from other people that you borrow that you can do it is that he's always been my biggest supporter. And in spite of the fact that I'm like, I'm going to do it anyway, mm. he's still always had my back the whole time. So important though, isn't it? Because I, I totally agree with you. I've been in the rooms where I've been on stage and also been in the audience where you're the person in the room and you get this energy and you get yeah. this environment and you're like, I need more of this. And also the belief, like you say, that you borrow. And then the person at home, the partner or the family member or the mother or sister, whatever it is, saying to you, what are you, what are you investing sure. in that for? And have you joined a cult? And all, all of this oh, yeah. sort of stuff all, of <laughs> all the time. And people just don't quite get it, I don't think. Now, you're on this journey, obviously invested in a handful of trainings now. Like, let's be honest, not a small amount of money. How did you then, at what point did you then say, do you know what? I'm going to now transition away from my job. Because I see that's been a lot of challenge that a lot of people have is they've, they're doing this stuff they love while still trying to balance a full-time job. How did you make that transition? There was a lot of plate spinning because I was doing two mentorship sessions a month. So two days per month, I was traveling, you know, a 300 mile round trip. Um, as well as doing all of the actions from all of that in the background. So I work well under pressure, which I now realize is actually one of my superpowers. And if I play by Parkinson's law unintentionally, so if you give me 10 weeks to do something, it's taken me 10 weeks. Give me one week, I'm, I'll get it done in a week. And so I realized that that's kind of, you know, something that works in my favor. But at that point, I still didn't have any desire to leave my job. I loved my job in relative terms. Now I realize I loved it in relation to my husband who genuinely hated his job. So our intention for property investing was never really about, you know, building up a substantial portfolio more than anything. It was getting Chris out of a job that he hated, but also the fact that he is so risk averse meant that he was like, no, I'm not leaving yet. I'm not leaving yet. And so in my kind of tiny little mind, I'm like, you hate your job. We've now realized that, that we can afford for you to leave. Why would you not leave? It's such an obvious thing, but he is, you know, let's get one more house. Let's do this. Let's do that. So I think our roles actually changed. And so it was, we were in a position where less than a year after starting to invest in property, he could have left his job, but he wouldn't. So it was fear and it was, you know, the what if we're not mortgageable and what if and what if and what if, which does stop me from jumping feet first. But at that point I was getting really frustrated because I'm like, you hate your job. You don't have to be in it. Why are you not leaving? By a few months later, so around 15, 16 months in, not only had we built up a, a decent sized portfolio enabling us to leave jobs, but also I was so busy because I was doing the property investing alongside him, but I was doing all of the public speaking. And I'd realized by that point I had this massive passion. So spinning so many plates, I knew something had to give. Mm -hmm. And although I don't really love property, I knew its place there. It was giving us the kind of more passive income. And I was never going to give up public speaking. So the job left, I actually left my job before he did. Seriously? Yeah. And how did he find that? Or was he like still your biggest cheerleader? Like Still Tony my goes. biggest cheerleader was really supportive, but really scared still. Because obviously when you take away a big salary, mm. it's like, you know. What if? Bust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I work well under, but he doesn't. And mm. he was my biggest supporter. And also, you know, he was still looking after the children because I was off here, there and everywhere doing training. So around a full-time job, which was really demanding for him and quite physical, you know, he was working usually around 11, 12 hours a day, Monday to Friday. We relied a lot on our family for childcare, mm. which I now know, you know, looking at other people from the outside, that must look really selfish on my behalf because, mm. you know, Chris wanted to get out of his job. Yeah, here you are swanning off to go and do all of these trainings as the delegate and also swanning off to go and do these trainings as a trainer. Um, and it actually took, so 
I'll never forget the day Chris rang me, which he never does when I'm away training. So I automatically thought something was wrong. And it was in his world, but not in mine, which was that I'm being made redundant. And I was like, yes. But he had genuine, like, what are we going to do? Say thank you. Like, leave the job. So because he still had this fear, you know, what if we're not mortgageable anymore? What if, what if, what if? And it was a big blessing because I don't know when he would have ever left his job because it doesn't matter how much money we were making elsewhere and how secure we were because we'd both been raised, you know, you go to school, you work hard, you get a good job. That was the the path that he was on. And even though he hated his job, the fear of not being in a job and not being in employment was so great that, you know, it, it stopped him, it held him back. And so honestly, for about two or three months after he left his job, he was just, he was lost. You know, he's so used to routine and it was a very strict routine. He'd never drop the kids off at school. It was always my job on the way to work because he used to start work at 5 a.m., so he never got to take the boys to school. And one of my favorite pictures anyone else would look at and be like, that's a really crap picture. Because it's a picture of the back of all three of them. But it's the back of all three of them. And it's Chris with our little boy's hands in his, taking Owen to his first day in junior school and Oliver to his first day in nursery. And it was like, that's why we did this. Because he missed out on so much of it. And so although he was lost for a few months... I think it was just lost while he found his feet in his because I was always at the forefront and mm. I've always been the face of both of the businesses. And even though he is the driving force behind the property business and let's be honest, the only success in it in the reality of things because he keeps the wheels turning when I'm off gallivanting. Um, I think he realised his worth then and it was like, okay, now I know what my mm. niche is. Now I know what my role is. And so a few months later, it genuinely felt like I got him back. I felt like I'd lost him, but didn't realise I'd lost him. Yeah, you know, to the feeling sad and feeling annoyed and being constantly tired. And mm. he had what we called the Sunday mood, you know, that, oh, they're going to work on Monday. But like he'd have that on a Saturday and a Friday. I've only got two days left. And it was affect, affecting so much. But again, you don't really realize until afterwards. Mm. So yeah, he, I got my husband back. That's incredible. It's interesting, Tony, you mentioned about the fear that was holding him back, right? I see people have this fear all the time. And it's not just when they're leaving a job. No it's like like public speaking, huge fear. Like one of the number one fears in the, in, in the whole of the UK, not even the world. There's fears of leaving a job, starting a business. What do you think is holding us back in that fear space from jumping in and doing these things? Because we know the light's at the end of the tunnel. I th- it's fear of the unknown, isn't it? Mm. I mean, there's a million different fears around it. It's the fear of failure, fear of judgment, fear of rejection. But I think overall of it is fear of doing something and it not being the right route. And then, you know, Mm. what do you do then? And I think given the paths that both of us have taken, we know there is always a solution, but I think most people don't realize there's a safety net there. Mm. And so for him, it was like, it's, it's what we're institutionalized in that way. Anyway, you know, you're a success. If you've got a good job, are you? What if you're miserable in said job? You might have all the money in the world, but if you're not fulfilled and yet there are people who are in jobs that are considered menial or underpaid or undervalued, but they love it. How many, you know, how many people work for the NHS absolutely love the role that they do, but you and I both know that they're not paid well enough Mm. for it, but it's where they feel fulfilled. And so I think the fear of failure in general, the fear of the unknown is the biggest one. Fear of unknown, because what if it goes wrong? And I think we focus so much on the what if it goes wrong, but there's not enough people out there going, yeah, but what if it goes amazingly? Or what if this is the door to something completely different? And 
that's mm. why I'm so passionate about showing people. And it's funny that we say that because one of the things that I'll always say when helping people or supporting people, no matter what market we're in, is that I open the door, but it's on you to walk through it. Mm. Like we'll open the door for you and the doors are always open, but none of us realize because we're guided down these little paths. And fear is a good thing in small doses because let's be honest, we can all make mistakes if we just are too, you know, gung-ho. Mm. But I think fear holds so many people back from realizing their potential and the the opportunities that mm. are out there. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And we're, we're both very similar, very gung-ho. Like we see the door open a teeny bit. We're like, I'm going in there. Like yeah. that is I'll my place. Through. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> my place. But do you ever find as a mentor, because I find it a lot where I've got so many clients that I mentor in loads of different things and the door is wide open. It cannot be any more open. And I have nudged them as close to the line as possible and they won't step through. Yep. How do you handle that? Well, I think first of all, you have to realize that everyone is responsible for their own success because the people pleaser inside of me feels like, like the old me felt like I'd failed if they did do it. Me too. I felt exactly the same. You are a direct result of my mentorship. Yeah. And if you don't do it, then I'm a bad mentor. Yeah. If I'm a bad mentor, then that's on me. But if I'm opening the door or the door's open and we're nudging you towards it, you know, with the other side of it, waving a fucking massive flag <laughs> and it's like, no, can't see it. I'm bl- it's like a blinkered horse. But I think it's also about timings for some people. Mm. The sad thing for me is that usually it takes for something bad for people to realize that they've got this alternative route. And I think that's why I feel like my role in life is when you'd said we've all got these things happening in our lives in the past that have, you know, kind of given us or driven us down a route in in Mm. our future. And I just think sometimes our role is to, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And I think sometimes it's about timings rather than, it being the right thing for them. Mm. We can showcase results. That's why we use testimonials and case studies. But I think a lot of people have that, you know, it's all right for you, which is why I believe the stories mm. are so important because I've been the person going, yeah, but you know, you're rich or you're this or you're that. When that's why it's really important to know someone's story is because every success has had, you know, some failures or some challenges mm. along the way. So I think it's really frustrating and you can only do it so much before you realize that actually this person just needs a little mm. bit of time out, yeah. you know, a little bit of perspective. So sometimes it's just that you're too close to it, isn't it? And the analogy I always use, I'm such a cheesy person with these analogies, but I'm a visual learner. So I, I teach in, in visuals is that I remember taking the kids once to this, um, like a crazy maze it was. And so as you're walking and maneuvering your way through, you reach a dead end and you know, you've got to turn back. You don't know where you're supposed to be going, but you know that the, you know, the mm-hmm. end is in the middle of, if you like. Whereas there's that person who sat on this huge stool with an aerial view going, go left and go right. But we don't always hear them. You and I are the people going, go left, go right, do it this way, do it that way. Yeah. But that person can't hear you. So they have to hit the brick walls along the way. And I think, you know, it's easy for when you have the aerial view, but sometimes mm-hmm. if you're in the thick of it, you just... You can't see it. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes in that aerial view, we almost have to be patient as well because I find, I don't know if you've experienced this, but because I've mentored on certain topics so many times, like I've mentored people on how to start a business for the last seven years. If someone asks me a question, they're really early on their journey. I'm like, oh, and you can do this and you can do this and then this. And then I'm like, Chloe, hold on, (laughs) slow down. (laughs) Yeah, hold your horses because they're not there yet. And I almost see them getting a bit blinkered like, this is too much for me. Because sometimes you have to almost, yeah, you have to like, go to their level of comfort or a a level of discomfort that they're prepared to take. Now, Tony, for you, at what point did you go from being comfortable thinking, I'm going to be a speaker 
to now I'm going to train other people to speak. Because that's like another level. <laughs> that's a whole other level of challenge. I think that's one of those, the door opened and an opportunity was given. So I've always been someone who likes to help people irrespective of what I'm doing. That's why I went into HR. You know, I, I didn't want to go into HR. I actually thought, so I've always been in retail. I did a graduate course in retail because I did a degree solely because it was expected of me. You know, you've got the opportunity to go to university. You should go. Some of your older brothers and sisters didn't have that opportunity. So I kind of did it, but was like that one. And I picked a degree that was really generic and it was business in general because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. And so I, I studied in this why don't you do the graduate course and honestly I was swayed by the money most of my peers were getting jobs in this that and the other area and the salaries were here and the graduate course was here and I thought well I'll do that for now and so I did the graduate course with a view to becoming an operational manager working shop floor based working in that environment and I think opportunities present themselves so part way through the graduate course I was invited to go on to the HR route and I was thinking I didn't really think that'd be the route for me I'm not great with people but again, it's sometimes people seeing you something you don't see in yourself. So I went into the HR route and I've always kind of followed that route. I like helping people. I like supporting people. So it was a natural progression for me to become the trainer in it. I always knew I wanted to be a trainer, but the trainer was in property because I thought that was the only route for me. Mm. When I, the public speaking skill set just changed everything for me. And I think once I saw that in me, I thought this is an amazing opportunity to help other people. So once I, I knock on doors a lot rather than wait for opportunities to be given to mm. me. So I throw my hat in the ring irrespective of knowing whether or not I can do it or how logistically it will work. So I'd kind of just said, I'd love to do this. And then a one day event was created and I was like, me, pick me. And so I shadowed and I did, you know, a lot of it at my own cost and my own time. And then it just became the natural progression. And I think that's where I flourish. I love seeing other people succeed. Mm but there is that part of me that needs to know that I've helped other people as well. So, you know, there's a little bit of selfishness in there as well. Mm. I feed off seeing other people succeed with my help. So one feeds the other and it's just, it seems like it, it's what I was born mm. to do. I love it. Yeah. You can tell though, when you talk about it and I, I can really relate because for me, I'm, I love storytelling through books. So with a lot of, lot of what I do, and it's funny because storytelling on stage and storytelling a book, is such a similar skill set, whether you speak it or you write it, it's the same storytelling skill that we need to master. And I, I'm the same. Like when I see people write books and their book becomes a bestseller, I'm like, I'm so proud of them, you know, or they write in the media and they get featured and I'm like, oh, and it's their belief in themselves. Yeah. Cause don't you find a lot of people don't believe in themselves until they see other people's reactions when Absolutely. they're on stage. So how, how do you find that? I mean, when you first started your first few students going through the speaker <laughs> journey, how was that? Scary as anything, because you feel like you're responsible for their success. And there is still that part of me. That's something I have to work on regularly. Mm. You know, we take responsibility and ownership for other people's success sometimes, and we can't do that. It's on each individual to do it, but to know that you're kind of guiding them in the right way. And so, you know, the first few times that I delivered it, I was just filled with dread, not that they would know it because we know the skill sets to hide all of that. But I think to help other people, I knew what it had done for me. And so I was like the biggest champion of, no, you've just got to push through it. Because I, on the speaker training that I now deliver, when I was the delegate, it's five days and I almost left on day two because I was really scared and I didn't want to tell. It was the story that was my nemesis. The irony now being because I'm out the other side, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. You need yeah. to work through it. So I think 
context before content is the way that I do everything. And mm. I think now I give great context to people and those stories. We use other people's stories to help other people's stories. So we're saying this person, you know, I'm my own story there. I almost left on day two. Imagine if I didn't look at the trajectory my life would have taken. It would have been mm. completely different. Whereas on day two of that course, I was like, no, I'm done. This isn't for me. And it was my mentors who saw that in me. And that's why I have massive gratitude. And I realize the impact that, because we're having an impact on people's lives mm. one way or another. Sometimes we just don't realize it. And once you have the skill set to realize we're actually always impacting people's lives, you get a choice in the way that you do that. Mm. And so I choose to do it for the good for them and for me, because there's, you know, a little fat kid inside of me who needs to be loved. And that's where I get my fuel from. So mm. sometimes it's helping them to realize that actually they don't have to be in control. Usually the people who struggle the most are the ones who tell stories or deliver trainings in the job or the business. And then like, you've got to park that, you've got to unlearn it before you learn it. And yeah. so that's kind of the skill set is to wrap them in enough cotton wool that they bounce, but no much, not so much so that you stifle them. Mm. I love that. So it gets to day two and you're running it now. You're like, lock the doors. No one can leave. Actually say that. You're not <laughs> like, yeah, doors are locked. No one's going. It's going to be painful. We talk about the breakdown before the breakthrough, the arrow being pulled back before it's propelled for forwards. And so I'll always give honest context to that. Mm. I'm really honest when I'm, when people are signing up for this to say, by the way, this isn't going to be easy. And if you think it is, it's probably not for you. Yeah. But they put themselves in that position. If someone comes to a one day event or they listen into your webinar or they listen into your podcast, they're asking for help in some way, shape or form. They just don't know what it is. Yeah. And I find it fascinating though, Tony, because I think so many people don't realize storytelling is therapy because you do have to tell your story and you have to connect with the emotion. I think emotion is a huge part that people don't like to touch on. When you see, I don't know if you've done this and I'm just going to say out there, just hoping you'll agree with me and you don't have to, by the way, <laughs> and anyone listening think I'm crazy, but I struggle now to see people on stage who haven't been trained properly. Yep. Right. And I don't mean this from an arrogant perspective. I don't mean like I'm a better speaker, but I'm an emotional speaker and I genuinely, I can't fake the tears. Like if I cry on stage or like I can well up, it's genuine. Yep. And I see people on stage where they fake it or they're like, yeah, click the fingers and you see them tell the story over and over and over and the same bit, it's the tears come on or worse, nothing. And they're just surface level. And I really struggle. And I honestly, I've been there recently. I won't say who, but I've been there and I'm like, I need to leave the room. This is killing me. <laughs> How do you find that? And I don't say that from an arrogant perspective. It's just because when you know, when you, when you teach it, you see it. How do you find that? Honestly, it's one of the most frustrating. And also it's really hard when you know that if that person, if you're talking about the person who's like mm. surface level, you know, there's a story and then there's a story behind the story. Yeah. And when they go story level, you're like, oh, you're missing the connection with so many other people. Mm. And I think for me, when I'm talking about or, or teaching storytelling, I will always say, because it was the thing that I struggled with most, you're never telling your story for you. Some people on the stage are telling their story for them or in a manipulative way or a coercive mm. way. And that's genuinely why I almost left on day two, because in my head, I couldn't piece the the jigsaw puzzle pieces together. Yeah. I was like telling a story that feels like I'm tainting a memory or I'm telling it for the wrong reasons. And it was until I realized that you're never telling your story for you. You're telling it for the other people. Like you're telling it for those people who are in the low that you were feeling then and you could be a solution to their problem. So that's the the action that we take. But similarly, you know, you see people who've got amazing potential, but they won't go there or vice versa. I can't bear the whole, I've never been trained in NLP, but the people who every movement, we talk about movement with purpose, but every movement is 
foretold and it's like it became it seems disingenuous and I'm yeah. like that's not you but if you actually let us see the real you you'd open up to so many more people so I find it really frustrating and it's not from an arrogant perspective because I'm by no means the finished article mm. but I think because we're you know it's like you're bottled inside and you're like oh no no you have no idea what you're doing one way or the other in the manipulative way or the oh if you yeah. just went there so I find it really frustrating mm. and Sometimes, you know, you can tell people what it is that you do. And I think because of the industry and the niches that we're in, sometimes people think that you're being, I don't believe by any means I am the best at anything mm -hmm. that I do. But I know that my mentors and having them people help me and see something in you. And it's like, sometimes our role is to hold a mirror up to someone. It's nothing to do yeah. with, you know, I want to see you succeed. Mm -hmm. It's like for your benefit, I want to. So I find it really cringeworthy. Yeah. I find it really frustrating. And I'm like, sometimes you just have to kind of, you know, bite your fist and run away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and not be the person that gives feedback in unsolicited as well. Cause I, I've seen that and I've had that done to me before as well. And I think for me, it's about not being that cookie cutter. Yeah. You know, we're trained in a framework, whether you're storytelling in a book, whether you're storytelling on stage, there is a framework, yeah. right? And don't break the recipe, it works, but you want to do it your way. Yeah. How did you find it? Because let's be honest, the training company you work for or what started your public speaker journey in, has some female speakers, but majority male speakers. And as a fellow female speaker, who's also spoken on the big orange background yep. <laughs> stage, how did you find it going in and being Tony Gargan, the female speaker that's bringing your version of their framework? Well, that's a good question. It was daunting, but I also saw it as a massive opportunity. I'm like, I want to be the first of that female speaker. I want to mm. be the first, you know, let's look something I've always struggled with from a young age and now realize is actually a superpower when you hone it is the ability to see the positive and the negative. And so instead of looking at it from the perspective, which I was initially of oh, it's predominantly male, it's a male dominated industry, blah, blah, blah. What an opportunity. So I was in my HR role. Retail is a predominantly male environment, but HR is a predominantly female environment. Yep. So in a senior team, nine times out of 10, I was the only woman. And because I'd done that from the age of 21 as a senior manager, and I know that's something that, you know, you've experienced, you know, the whole, can I speak to the manager? And I'm like, it's me. And they look you up and down. They're like, no, you know, it's like you're waiting for them to say, is your mum or dad in? Can yeah. I speak to the real manager? You know, the, the, the one with the penis. <laughs> no, I'm still the manager. So I think I saw it as a massive opportunity. Still really daunted by it. Mm. Still really scary. But I thought, what if I do it and how many doors can I open for other females? Mm. So there was only a handful of us coming up training through the ranks at that point in time. And I saw it as a massive opportunity. So mm. a big goal of mine was to be the first, you know, female speaker from Liverpool. Cause that's also another thing, you yeah. know, can I really make it as a speaker? Let's be honest. Scouse is its own language. So <laughs> I often say English is my second language because Scouse is my first. Um, look at the opportunities that you've got mm. first one of this first one of that so I wanted to be a master trainer and I got to that so you know I'm all about accountability my vision is to be there are only a handful of elite trainers for, for progressive I want to be the first female elite trainer I want to be recognized for what I've achieved but also to then be like if I've done it you can do it too yeah. so I see it as a massive opportunity it's so inspiring honestly I remember when I met you in the in the first time in that whatever training come training level we're in I think it was training the trainer or whatever yeah. it was and I remember because there's again not many females and I was the same the sort of like the right hand the only female speaker at that level as were you and I think it's so refreshing because a lot of people used to say to me Chloe does it not piss you off that the only reason you've got that is because you're the only female and they need a female. And I used to be like, I used to see reds and I'm like, actually, I don't care what opened the door. I'm going to show you why you should keep it open for me, you know, because it is inspiring. Now, 
I know you're still on your journey, as we both said, neither of us are the finished article yet. Who would you say has inspired you most on your journey to opening these doors and pushing through them? So I think my mentors have always inspired me because I think you've always got to look up to someone. Mm. So, you know, Rob Moore genuinely inspired me because I thought, you know, let's be honest. I'm like, he's from Peterborough. He swears like a trooper. He, you know, he's got zero fucks to give. And I thought, if you can do it, I can do it. And I was really inspired by him. Mm. But there's been lots of people who've inspired me along the way and they're not necessarily in the, you know, the niche that I'm in. So I'm talking people who stand out in their areas. So, you know, when you look at people like Oprah Winfrey and what she's achieved, it's like, shouldn't there be more people who are going in spite of this have, have achieved yeah. that? And so a lot of the time it's people from backgrounds or, or lesser known people, mm. like people within your life who you think my mum was one of my biggest inspirations. She put up with so much, she dealt with so much and she had with hindsight a really difficult life but she always showed up with a smile on her face and even now if I ever put a picture of her on social media or I'm remembering her for her anniversary or whatever the amount of comments from people saying she was an amazing woman and it's like everyone thinks that their mum is the best person in the world or most people think their mum is the best mum mm. and so I think without a shadow of a doubt I'm doing it for her as much as anyone else because she gave me the belief in myself that it doesn't matter whether you're the smallest or the, you know, I was the youngest of six kids. You can do be and have everything you want to be and your background doesn't dictate your, your future. So I think the usual people that you would expect who are in the limelight, but the ones who are in the background are the most inspiring. And without a shadow of a doubt, it was my mum because she was the strongest person I knew. Oh, that's so beautiful. I, I agree though, because it doesn't always have to be the cookie cutter person that's exactly in my steps. Like they've done it before. Like you say, Rob is a very unique character and he is Marmite <laughs> to a lot of people. You're the lover or hate it, lover and hate him. But I always find some inspirational people are like that. Yep. They're inspiring because of their being different, despite all odds, that kind of thing. So I, I love those. I think it's about owning who you are. And I think that's mm. what I really resonated with because there are a lot of things that make us different. And so often we're taught, you know, to focus on your weaknesses and become good at those. Well, now how about we just focus on the strengths and outsource the weaknesses? <laughs> I'm really good at this and I'm really good at that. So instead mm -hmm. of putting myself in a really awkward position and you're trying to get good at something you're not good at, why not just double down, down on the stuff that you're good at? And I think, as you say, you know, I've always been the talk of the gift of the gab. And when you realize that you can make an impact in people's lives, it's not just that person though, it's the ripple effect. Mm. What are you going to be remembered for when you leave this mortal coil? And I think if I'm remembered for being, because my mum is remembered for being a good person. Don't get me wrong, she had her faults like everybody else does. But if I'm remembered in that way, and it's like when people, you know, for me, if someone says, oh, Chloe, and you go, oh, Chloe, with a smile on your face, that's what you want, not Chloe. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So even if I am a huge fan of the poet and historian Maya Angelou, who is one of, the, the kind of yeah. pinnacles of the someone who inspires me and the quote that I share with everyone on every stage, no matter what industry I'm teaching in, is that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. And that's a gift, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Make them feel good. And that's actually the, at the heart of storytelling, right? Oh, it's always about how is this person going to feel when you're telling this story? You know, I love it when I hear a story on stage and I get shivers. Sometimes I still get shivers telling my story on stage and I've said it so many times. That, that to me shows that you're connected to it and you're not telling a story for telling yeah. a story's sake because you understand the reasons for telling it. And I think that was the me on day two of the training. I didn't get that. Mm. I don't actually think I really got it until 
many, many months later when I delivered my story on stage and I'd connected with it so much that they connected and a lady came up to me and said, thank you so much for sharing your story. And because of that, I believe I can do it. And it was like this, I even now I get goosebumps because I'm like, that's why I do this. Yeah. It's, it's Yes, it's about you and we're all mm. fulfilling some sort of void in our life when we need to be, you know, standing on stages or doing podcasts or whatever but that you realise that's just such a small part of it. And when you get those messages saying, I've just, whatever, raised the first bit of money, I've just stood on the first stage, I've been invited to a podcast or whatever. It's like, yeah, that's why I do it. And I'll keep doing it until yeah. I can do it no more. Oh, and I love it, Tony, because you're inspiring so many people and you're also surrounded by inspiring people because similar to me writing books, you're surrounded by speakers. And so everybody has such an inspiring story. Now, we have a tradition on the show that we always ask the final question of all of our guests. Who do you know that has an inspiring story that you think we should have on the show next? So there are a million people like that because I'm privileged to help people craft their story. But there is someone who comes to mind. It was the first person who came to mind when you mentioned that. And it's someone who isn't necessarily the most well-known of people. But when I heard his story, the impact it had on me, and I knew that he needed to get out to the world. And it's a guy called Tony Courtney Brown. And Tony is, oh, I get goosebumps. He's one of the, genuinely one of the nicest people that you will ever meet. And he is the epitome of someone who has a story that you would never expect. And I think he, he's got a voice like Velvet as well, which always helps when someone's telling a story. And so I think more people need to hear his story because it's not just inspiring. I think inspiring people is great, mm. but I think inspiring people to move and motivating people is a step further beyond. And that's mm. something that his story did for me. I know has done for everyone who has heard it. So I think you should have Tony Courtney Brown as your a guest on your Oh, thank you, Tony. Intro, yeah. <laughs> Please do. That's amazing. Another Tony. Well, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the difference though about inspiring stories is it's not just about the, it's not just about inspiring them, but it's inspiring them to change something. We don't want to just feel good. We want to actually do something with it. Yeah. So thank you so much. And Tony, thank you for being on the show. We are all out of time and it has been <laughs> so great. I feel like I could just talk to you for ages. We'll have to get you back for a second one. Thank you very much for having me and I'll gladly come back again. Oh, fantastic. Well, guys, I hope you have enjoyed the episode as much as I have. Tony's one of the most inspiring guests we've had on the show yet. And I'm so glad to have another female speaker here to share her story with you. Do me a favor if you haven't already. If you're watching this on our YouTube channel, share in the comments, what have you found the most inspiring about this? What about what Tony shared or the golden nuggets that she shared with us so far? Have you enjoyed the most and been inspired by the most? Share it on our YouTube channel in the comments. If you are listening on Apple, Spotify, or any other podcast platforms, first of all, get on YouTube because you can see it in the visual form as well. But if you haven't already, make sure you follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on our next inspiring guest. I'll see you next week. Oh,